Bibles this morning to Hosea chapter 1 again, Hosea chapter 1. Happy Father's Day to all of you dads out there. Woke up this morning and Evan surprised us with a fever and a cough, so my Father's Day is that one of my children is not with me today, so um, I always hate it, but it seems like it's at the most inopportune times that 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 happens, but uh, certainly thankful for you, all of you men who demonstrate what it is um, for us to see godly fatherhood in action. Um, Thankful for my earthly father, for my grandfathers, um, for my heavenly father this morning, as I know you are. Um, You know, men, something that we need to consider is that so much of what our children learn about God, they learn from us. Really, fatherhood is the number one platform for teaching theology, for teaching um, our children who God is and what He is like. And so it's certainly not a light calling that we find uh, ourselves placed into and, and what a joyous calling it is, a joyous burden. Um, to reflect the things of God to our children uh, and such a high calling. We want to look this morning at Hosea chapter 1. We're going to take verses 2 down through verse 13 of chapter 2. And want to examine this morning, as I mentioned last week, this book is somewhat difficult to outline. It doesn't lend itself to a smooth, clinical, easy-flowing outline, but instead Hosea is back and forth with his message uh, to uh, Hosea uh, there at the beginning with his marriage with Gomer and then also God to the nation of Israel. And so it kind of jumps back and forth and the message is is a bunch of little sermons within one larger sermon. And so we want to try to take that apart as, as carefully as we can and as... And as um, understandably as we can in whole units. And so this morning, uh, we want to examine the tough love of grace, the tough love of God's grace that he at times uh, demonstrates for our good and for his glory. And so out of respect for the reading of God's word, would you join me in standing as we read that passage, Hosea chapter 1, verses 2, down through chapter 2, verse 13. We read this, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu, For the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. And when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land and 
great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sister Ruhama, contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her a wilderness, make her like desert land, and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are the children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain at the harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also say I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father. We want to bow this morning and we want to understand the righteous jealousy of a holy God for His people. Father, we want to understand that so great is Your love, so great is Your compassion for us, that at times Your grace must needs take on the form of tough love. As You chasten those whom You have called, as you chasten those whom you have chosen, as you, as it was in the days of Hosea and Gomer, as you hedge us up with thorns and you confound us and you cause us to suffer and you strip away the things of this world so that our eyes are only fixed on you. And we come back to you with repentant hearts, crying out in worship, it is better for us then than it is now. Sin has a high cost, but our God has a greater forgiveness. So, Father, let your grace be magnified this morning. Let the redemption that comes through your tough love be visible to us. Father, may we develop this morning an appetite for your holiness and the things that are holy. And, Father, may we develop this morning a hatred for the things that cause you grief the things that you hate, the things that detract from your beauty and your worthiness. Father, may we fall at your feet as true worshipers this morning, beholding the grace of God in the life of Hosea and Gomer, the life of uh, God with His covenant people, Israel. 
Father, may our spirits and our hearts rejoice in grace that loves lavishly and yet painfully tough at times. And we pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus, who suffered the wrath of God on our behalf, that we might be called your sons and your daughters. It's in his precious name by his finished work, Father, that we come to your throne this morning and we plead these things before you. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. You know, when I speak of grace, your thoughts are probably thoughts of warm affection that yield uh, themselves in love and favor and blessing. But what if I said to you this morning, if we are having a one-on-one conversation, and I was talking to you about God's grace this morning, and, and we came to this part of the conversation, and I said to you that part of God's grace is revealed in our lives by divine intervention. How would that settle? How would that, how would that affect your view of grace? If I said to you, there are times in our life that God's grace is manifest not by an outpouring of divine favor and blessing, but by divine intervention where God steps in and saves us from ourselves. Painful as it is, difficult as it is. To many people today, the notion of grace is equated with the unequivocal freedom that God will allow them to live however they please. Sure, they may not experience as close of a relationship with God that they could have, but what's the big deal? I'm doing what I want to do. And that's what grace is all about. God is not concerned with my proximity in relationship to Him. God's just concerned that I'm happy. And that's what grace means to me. God's just concerned that I get to do what I want to do. But brothers and sisters, this morning, if we are faithful students of Scripture, we understand that that is not at all the definition of God's grace. Especially as we look at Hosea. And I'm so thankful as I've had the opportunity to to pour over this this week, I can just tell you the times in my mind that I think God's grace was manifest to me in that season, not by divine blessing, but by divine intervention, where He saved me from my own desires, where He stopped my sinful uh, thinking, my selfishness, my pride. Some would say, surely God would never interpose and stop such people who view grace as just sheer freedom to do what they want to do. I would ask you, however, is a man who showers his wife with favor and with blessings called a husband of grace today and a tyrant tomorrow if she becomes unfaithful to him and he pursues her and ends as best as he can any uh, paths that lead to her unfaithfulness? Is he a husband of grace today because he pours out lavish favor and then tomorrow he is a husband who is a tyrant because he stops her? We would say no. No, no, no. He's still a husband of grace because he's calling her back. He's bringing her back to the place where she can have favor poured out upon her. That's not 
tyrannical at all for a husband to protect his wife. You remember last week as we started and we talked about Hosea's difficult love that he was called to demonstrate in that very difficult marriage. And we discussed that marriage is exclusive, right? It's not for, it's not a communal event. It's one man and one woman. It, it provides, if you remember from last week, the right and proper place for righteous jealousy of our spouses. And because of those things, marriage gives us grounds for intervention. If you knew your spouse was going down a path that would lead to their ultimate unfaithfulness to you, would you not do everything in your power to stop it? Oh, we certainly would. And that is God's grace for us when He sees His chosen people, in this case Israel, going down a path that is going to lead to further and further blasphemy and further, further forgetting Him and those things. God steps in as He ought to have done, as He rightly should have done, and He divinely intervenes. And it's not tyrannical. It's grace. Because in that intervention, God calls them back just as Hosea did with his wife Gomer over and over again. Brothers and sisters, this morning, let us remember God's grace is never defined as a tolerance for sin. God's grace is always defined as an elimination of sin through God's intervention and subsequent pursuing work of redemption. That is grace. Men would never turn away from sin unless God intervenes and does the turning around Himself. That is why we look at scriptures like 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25, where Paul says to Timothy, be patient with those that oppose sound teaching and sound doctrine. Peradventure, God would give them repentance. God divinely intervenes and He begins to turn our hearts back to Himself. And so to understand the tough love of grace in Hosea's life and in Hosea's book, we need to start by examining the four commands that he gives in chapter 1. We did the first last week when he says in verse 2, Go marry a woman of harlotry. Go marry Gomer. But then God gives three subsequent commands in relation to that marriage, in relation to the children's names. And I want us just to, for a moment, consider what God is saying here so that that what comes after makes more sense. Number one, God says, go name your first child Jezreel. The first son who is born to Hosea and Gomer is a son, uh, a product of their marriage, of their union together. Now, Let me just give you some background because perhaps we've forgotten where all we have seen this name pop up in Scripture. The name Jezreel is a significant name in the life of Israel. It's not just a name. They didn't pull it out of a baby book. God says, listen, this has historical and even prophetic significance to it. The name literally means God sows. And here it refers to however, to the literal valley of Jezreel and the city of Jezreel that came to bear its name. You remember several significant events, I know you will, 
that happened in this area of Jezreel, if not in the city of Jezreel itself. The first that comes to our mind occurs in 1 Kings chapter 21. The story of Naboth. It's not a particularly pretty chapter. And Jezebel, his wife, Ahab's wife, said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And so she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the table and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him. You curse God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So the men of his city and the elders and the nobles who lived in the city did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then two worthless men came in and said before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So we learn that this is a story, a a place of, of of, of that fertile crescent, if you will, in Israel. Remember, Israel was an agrarian nation. They lived by agriculture, and this was the heart of their agricultural center, this fertile valley, because it was a place of great fertility as far as the soil, and many crops were grown there. It's no surprise that we come across this place again in 1 Kings chapter 18. The prophets of Baal, the the fertility goddess, had set up their seat of worship in Israel, in Jezreel, in that area, in that region, was a stronghold for Baal worship. And we all know what happens, don't we, on Mount Carmel, that mountain that sits at the end of the, the mountain range overlooking the valley. Elijah meets with the prophets of Baal and calls down fire. And God consumes them overlooking the valley of Jezreel, the valley that God had given to the nation of Israel to sow their crops in. It's the place where Jezebel was killed. 2 Kings 9.10 says, The dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel. It's the place where God told Jehu to go down and put an end to the dynasty of Ahab. 2 Kings 9, 17 and 24. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company, and Joram said, Take a horseman and send him to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? And Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Joram between his arms, and the arrow went through his heart, and he sank in his chariot. Are you starting to see that the pattern for Jezreel in in the Old Testament was a place given by God to produce what is good, but it has turned to a valley of bloodshed? It's turned to a place that's not, in their minds, uh, such a hot place. It's a place where you go to worship Baal. It's a place where you go to die, 2 Kings 10.11. Now, Jehu does something that God never did intended for him to do. And that is where we get the prophecy here in Hosea chapter 1. You see, God told Jehu, go and end, go and end 
Ahab's dynasty. But Jehu decided if a little bloodshed was good, a lot of bloodshed was better. And so he goes in, and not only does he end Ahab's dynasty, but he ends all of Ahab's friends' lives. And he goes in and he slaughters anybody who is associated with Ahab. And God says, that is not what I told you to do. I told you to go into Ahab's dynasty and no further. But Jehu, taking things into his own hands, goes and does what God did not command him to do. 2 Kings 10.11 So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all his great men and his acquaintances and his priests until he left them without a survivor. Sounds somewhat akin, doesn't it, to Samuel? And he, Saul was to go and he was to kill Agag. And Saul doesn't. And he was supposed to kill all the sheep and he didn't. And so Samuel approaches Saul and he says, what is this? Do I hear the bleeding of sheep? Saul, yeah, 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 you know, we're going we're gonna to have a little fun with Agag. We're going to kind of torment him the way he's tormented us. And those sheep that he had, we're going to use those for sacrifices. And what are Samuel's words? To obey is better than sacrifice. Saul, your thoughts don't count. God told you what to do. And so Jehu learned the hard way because it would be in the valley of Jezreel because of Jehu's own disobedience that his dynasty would be ended as well. And so when God says, name your son Jezreel, because Jezreel no longer stands for the place where I have sowed and made life for you. Jezreel is now a place of death for you. And there is going to come a day in the valley of Jezreel where the nation of Israel is ended. Happened in 722 BC. The Assyrians came down and they ended the, Isra- the, the northern kingdom of Israel. They ended their reign right then and there and took them away in captivity. It was a terrible time in their history. It become known as a place of bloodshed and by its bloodshed. And because of their continued disobedience, God would send years later the Assyrians to fulfill what, J, uh, what Hosea's son's name meant. I'm going to tell you where it's going to happen. I'm going to tell you how it's going to happen. And God delivers the horrible news through his firstborn son. Because of your sin, I will take you away. And then God goes on and he gives a second command, or actually a third command. He says, name your next child, your daughter, Lower Hama, because I will no longer have compassion on Israel. I will no longer have compassion on you. And this is Hosea to Gomer as well, as their marriage is portraying God's marriage to Israel. So when we read this text, tell me, do we not struggle with a fundamental question here? Look what he says. I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. Now, wait a minute. Hosea stood with Gomer and he entered into a covenant of marriage with Gomer. And God had entered into a covenant 
uh, relationship with Israel to love them and to be faithful to them and provide for them and protect them. How can, how can Hosea, how can God now look at their bride and say, I will no longer have compassion? Does God change? At a cursory reading, this is a problem. And yet we know in the back of mind, God doesn't change. And God doesn't lie. And God is faithful. So how do we explain what Hosea says to Gomer and what God says to Israel in this text? Can that covenant relationship so easily be dissolved? God looks down at Israel and he says, this is going to be her name. She represents the harlotry of Israel with the cult of Baal. How can this be? And it's at this point we're looking at the Tavlaf of grace and we're going, this is no grace. This sounds like one strike and you're out. What do we do with this? Well, we need to go back and we need to dig a little deeper because we do live with the full assurance that God is not a liar and God never changes and God is faithful. And we can find that even here. The, the word literally interpreted does not mean I will cut you off from love and compassion forever. That, that, that would be a different word, a different way to communicate the Hebrew word here, though it literally means I will no longer pursue you with favor. You see, what God has promised to Hosea and promised to Israel, I'm not going to stop pursuing you, but I am going to stop pursuing you with compassionate favor. In other words, we're about to go to the closet with the belt, and I'm going to love you, but I'm going to love you in a different way than perhaps what you think of being loved. I'm going to love you with discipline. I'm going to love you with chastisement. I'm going to love you by intervention. God is not casting them off. God is not telling Hosea, you need to cast Gomer off. You need to break your covenant with her. You need to get out of the marriage. You need to run. He's not saying that. But he is saying there's a time in which grace manifests itself in no longer pursuing someone further with favor. You know, that's one of the most dangerous things we can do, isn't it, as parents? When we see our children living sinfully or disobediently, we just continue to pour favor on them and say, hey, just, you just keep going down the road you're going down. I just love you. No, what do we do? We, 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 we stop it, don't we? We intervene. We say, this, this can't go on. I love you, but I cannot let you do this to yourself. I can't let you play out in the highway. You've got to stop this behavior. We've got to turn your heart around. And part of me turning your heart around is blocking off the thing that's taking you away. And we would do the same thing with our spouse. Secondly, we need to consider not only does the word not mean a casting them off, never loving them again. But simply a change in how we are demonstrating that love. We need to also understand that it is only by God's divine favor and blessing that Israel had made it this far. I want you to look at verse 7. Was Judah perfect in this time? 
Did Judah have sin issues as a nation? Oh, yeah, they certainly did. They weren't as pronounced, perhaps, as, as the northern kingdom of Israel, but Judah was certainly no uh, perfect child. In fact, it wouldn't be long, and Judah would be carried away into captivity. But notice what God says. I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God. Now listen, I will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. What is God saying? God is saying Judah is not going to survive. Judah is not going to be spared by their own strength. Judah is going to continue to experience my divine blessing of protection, and otherwise they too would be destroyed. Hey, Israel didn't just slip into the worship of Baal the night before this, and God's, oh, this had been going on for for centuries. God was patient and God was kind. And the only reason Israel hadn't yet been carried away is because God didn't allow it yet. And so we need to understand that God's grace is the only reason why anybody stands. Lamentations chapter 3, I thought about this one morning this week. It is by your mercies that we are not consumed every day. Why are you here this morning? God in His mercy did not destroy me. That's why I'm here today. That's the only reason I'm here. Because God in His covenant faithfulness to me has not destroyed me. Did He have a right to destroy me? You'd better believe it. We need to understand too that the removal of compassion yields in the final statement, which even becomes more difficult. Look at your text. He says, I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. Well... Now, that really sounds like a problem, doesn't it? God, it sounds like God is promising He will never again forgive Israel. Well, we know that's not true because we can go into the New Testament. We can find Paul's promise that the, the nation will be revived in Romans chapter 11. They're going to be, they're going to, uh, as my, my Hebrew professor and Romans professor in college used to say, he said, chapter 9, Israel's chosen. Chapter 10, Israel is frozen. And chapter 11, they're thought out. And God's not going to abandon them. We know that Paul says Israel will be saved. And so we, we understand that this must not be a, what we're thinking it is here. God certainly will never wink, wink at sin and allow sin to go on and not deal with it significantly. But but the Hebrew word of the the one translated here, forgive, is a little different, and it is literally translated to carry or take away. It's not, not actually technically the word for forgiveness. And some have associated that because the, the Hebrew preface lo, lo ruhama means no, lo means no, compassion, ruhama, that the low somehow grammatically should also refer to the word carry away. And so, no carry away, they would say. But the, actually, if you look at the text, low is not there. This was a bad assumption on the part of the translators. In fact, most English translations uh, will get this right. This particular one does not. So don't read this and say, oh, he's not ever going to forgive them. No, but what he is saying, I will not have compassion on them 
and I would ever carry them away. He's referring to the the captivity that is coming. Literally, he will surely carry them away because of their sin. He's still going to love them. But he's going to reflect that love through a tough chastening, not blessing. His chastening does not involve a promise of withholding of forgiveness forever, but rather that his tough love will bring and carry them away. Again, the Assyrians did this. I want you to just think with me for just a moment, would you? About timing in all of this. How patient is God? Wow, we couldn't even define that. God God is so everlastingly patient with us. But But I want you to notice something. Because again, this isn't like Israel went into idolatry and the next day God just, he deals with it. This is over the course of centuries. God is patient. God keeps warning him, turn back, turn back, turn back, turn back. Because there will come a day when I won't tell you to turn back anymore. I'll take you out. But look at the text. There's something interesting here that gives us something of the idea of God's patience in this message. Twice we see that after she had weaned, after she had weaned. You think about the time that it takes. I'm not a patient person by nature. I, I, I don't like to wait. And here is God and he says to his people, you need to repent. I'm not going to have compassion. And then before he delivers his next sermon, He waits until that child is weaned. Well, there's nine months in the womb. Then there, in Hebrew culture, up to three years before the child was weaned away. So we're already at three years and nine months per child before God speaks again here. Jezreel, three years, nine months. Lo Ruhama, three years, nine months. Lo Ami, three years, nine months. God is not saying one right on top of the other. Here's what, it, here's what you, God is patient. God is giving them plenty of opportunity to come back. As Hosea was with Gomer. We wouldn't be so patient if it were our wife living such an unfaithful life, would we? We, we, wouldn't, be, we wouldn't be just sitting around Hey, whatever's good with me. You, you know, I'm happy if you, just whatever's good. I, I, no, 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 no. It would be every second of every day, every day of every week, every every week of every year until they came back. God is patient. Nahum one three says the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In James 1.19, James says this, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, because that is how our Father deals with us. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. 
See, in Peter's day, there were people who said, well, God, if God hadn't punished us yet, God ain't going to punish us. We'll continue to live however we want. Peter goes, no, 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 you don't get it. God is being patient with you so that you have opportunity to repent. He's not just going to write you off at the drop of a hat. And so we see this patient God calling people back to himself. And then we get progressively worse. The third child comes along, lo, ami. The pronouncements get worse with each child. You'll see this. Name him lo, ami, because you are not my people and I am not your God. Israel had violated the covenant. They walked out of the covenant relationship with God as Gomer had done to Hosea. And for a period of time, God could rightly say, You are not my people. Not because I left you, you left me. And I am not your God because you are no longer worshiping me. You have turned to Baal. He is your new God. God didn't do this, brothers and sisters. God is not unfaithful here. God is absolutely faithful. It is Hosea and Israel, uh, Gomer and Israel that are unfaithful to God and Hosea. They have abandoned God. And he is pleased for a time to allow this to go on. How patient God is. It is, however, seemingly a reversal of the promise given. Jeremiah thirty twenty two. God had already said, you will be my people, I will be your God. Exodus 6, 7, all the way back into Moses. Then I will take for you my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Leviticus 26, 12, I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. And they walked out. And humanly speaking, Looks like the story's over, doesn't it? They're gone. They are now in a relationship with someone else. Can you imagine the heartbreak of Hosea? The heartbreak of God. As his spouse leaves and goes and begins an intimate relationship with someone else. And they show no signs of turning. They're not coming back. They are more than happy where they are. But the good news is coming. Look forward into chapter 2, verse 7. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but she will not find them. And then she will say, I will go back to my first husband. For it was better then than it is now. How much grace is there in what God is doing? Innumerable grace. That he would reinitiate the relationship again. That he would bring her back of his own will, not hers, 
Heaven knows she is doing everything she can to go after her lovers. And God is just stopping her at every turn until she finally is forced to look up and say, I'll go back. I'll go back. God has clearly spoken to Hosea through his own family experience. God's relationship with Israel was about to change. It would become a relationship where the holy love of God would be demonstrated through the difficult love of chastening. But not just for the purpose of chastening. For the purpose, ultimately, that Israel would repent and be restored. Even in judgment, notice the unfailing love of God. Look at verses 10 and 11. When you read this, after you've read what God is going to do in the preceding verses, you read verses 10 and 11, you just want to jump up and start screaming. It's that good. It's that gospel-saturated. It is that hope-giving. God can't go long without reminding them that I'm loving you like this now so that I can love you like this then. You read the book and it's just this constant repetition of judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. God wants us to know not only is He going to judge, He is going to save. Look at verse 10 11. Yet, these people who I have just said, you are not my people, I am not your God. Yet, their number of the sons of Israel, will be like the sand of the sea. Anybody counted that? No, we can't. It cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where I am now saying to you, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Notice how intimate the language becomes as we move on. They're not just people anymore, they're sons. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. No more war and strife between the kingdoms. There's coming a day when I'm not going to just bring them back to me. I'm going to bring them back to each other. And they will appoint for themselves one leader. Has it happened yet? No. It hasn't. But someday... King Jesus is returning. And all will be made right under Him. This is a prophecy of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ when He restores the kingdom. For people who were adulterous and unfaithful and hating one another, God will bring them back together under His rule and all will be made right. What a day. What a day. This, this, 722 B.C. is when this happened. But the gospel has not yet been fully realized in their life. How patient is God? <laughs> That's a long time to wait. That was 722 years before Jesus was born. We're 2,000 years into waiting for Him to come the second time. That's a long time. 2,700 years? But God says, don't fear, there is coming a day 
when all will be made right under one leader and they will go up from the land. And what does he say? Going all the way back, bringing in the very beginning. Great will be the day of Jezreel. No longer will it be the place of blood. It will be the place where God sows once again. It will become the valley of life and fruit and beauty and holiness once again. Great will be that day when Christ comes and Christ makes everything right. I want you to know that the promise of expansion here goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you also shall be a blessing. And we go on and read what? That in Abraham's seed, all the earth would be blessed. And God is continuing that promise of an expansion of Abraham's seed. For us, it's by faith in Christ who came from Abraham. And now literally that message goes around the globe. Genesis twenty two seventeen, 17, God reinitiates and reminds Abraham of his promise. I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Israel's coming back to the land. And they're going to do this. They're going to do this, but only because God does it. Ezekiel 37, 22 and 23. I will make them one nation in the land. Speaking of verses 10 and 11, a cross reference to that. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and no king and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. Oh, praise God for his covenant faithfulness. Praise God that He loves us and will bring us back quickly in closing. As the first 13 verses of chapter 2 are really a conclusion for all that God is going to do. He says, first of all, contend. I believe, I believe this is to Jezreel. I believe that Hosea is speaking to Jezreel. And he is saying to Jezreel, the only legitimate, remember last week, Jezreel appears to be the only legitimate son of Hosea and Gomer's marriage. The other children were conceived in adultery. And he says to Jezreel, go say to your brothers, Ami and your sisters, Ruhamah. Contend with your mother, contend. This is a legal lawsuit. The word literally means to engage in a lawsuit. In its... Most common usage, it means to brawl. Put him up with your mother and go to war. Contend with her. Contend with Israel. And he gives the demands of a jealous husband. Notice in verse 2, Ami is repeated. I'm done. I'm not going to pursue her with favor anymore. 
She's not going to be my people. And he says to her, here's my demand, Israel. Here's my demand, Gomer. Put away the adultery from among yourself. And by the way, the language that he uses here is of the most intimate kind. Put it away from your face. Put it away from your bosom. Get Put it away. This was physical, the most intimate kind of adultery. Not metaphorical. This is real. This is happening. This is language is meant to convey the most intimate sense of their betrayal. Put it away. Give me back your heart, Israel. Your gold that I gave you for the worship of me, you've now used for Baal. The crops that I gave you, you've now used to worship him. Your children that I gave you, you're now sacrificing as child. By the way, this was a major part of Baal worship was child sacrifice. Several years ago in Damascus, they expanded the runway at the international airport there in Damascus. And when they began to excavate at the end of the runway, they dug up an ancient worship site full of infant bones. And they, the archaeologists say the bones appear to have been burned. These were the same people in Damascus and Assyria that, that came down into Israel and brought their religion with them. And the Israelites joined right in. God says, I've given you the children. I've given you purity as a nation. And you have used that against me. The most intimate things I've given to you, you have turned and used for Baal. But notice what he says. There's going to be consequences if you don't. He says, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. What is a child like when they're born? They are helpless. They are vulnerable. They are unable to help themselves. And then he goes on and he says, I will make her like a wilderness, Leon Wood. And his uh, commentary says that he is reminding them about the, the wilderness experience they've already had. And he says, you're going back. It's going to be just like it was when you came out of Egypt. I'm taking you into the wilderness, Israel. We're going to have to go through this all over again. But then it's a generational problem. He says, not only will I not have uh, no relationship with you, I won't be your people. Or, and you, I, you won't be my people and I won't be your God. He says, but also I'm not going to have any compassion on your children. Because they're children of adultery. Your mother played the harlot. Hosea's wife brought children home that didn't belong to him. Spiritually speaking, the nation of Israel was continuing to progress through the generational cycle and children were being born to parents who worshipped Baal that continued to worship Baal. They forgot God generation after generation and God says, listen, I'm not going to have any compassion on them either. They're acting just like their parents. They're conceived in harlotry. They're being harlots themselves. Won't do it. We are tempted to look at the innocency of childhood and of children and be confused by this. But God doesn't excuse our past. He'll redeem it, but He won't excuse it. And now God switches and in and, and the text here, He's no longer talking to the nation as a whole, but when he begins to talk about children, uh, most believe that he is now talking to individuals that make up the nation. 
You see, salvation has always been individual. Sin has always been individual. If anyone is in heaven, it will be because that individual professed faith in Christ, period. And God deals with Israel as a whole, but He also deals with Israel as individuals here. And He's like, look, you you know, just because the whole nation's doing it, do you have to do it? It's Father's Day, right? All of us fathers have used that adage. If everybody else was jumping off a bridge, would you jump off the bridge? Hey, Israel, you're a nation. I, I work in a special way with you, but you're also individuals. And just because the whole nation's doing it, doesn't mean you got to do it. So some of you turn around and call the rest of your citizens to repentance. Do this. Do this. I won't deal with you nationally or individually if you do not. Why would God do this? What's the fallacy of her thinking? I'll go after my lovers. Let, the, the word literally translated means, let me go. If you were to translate, she was bent on pursuing her unfaithfulness. It's an emphatic word. Let me go after my lovers. How heartbreaking. Israel says to God, let us go. We want Baal. Gomer says to Hosea, let me out. I'm going to my lovers. They give me food. They give me water. They give me fine clothing. They give me wine. What? What? No, I I did that. No, no, no. They did that. No, I did that. No, they do that for me. You don't. God says, because of that attitude, I'm going to hedge her way up. That's grace. She's going to run into the wall, but she can't get out. I'm going to hold her right there. I'm going to hold her in there. Nobody can spare her. In fact, he says that no one can save her. God is going to hold them right there so they can't go any further. And also so that he can punish them. I was a child. I was a master dancer. My parents went to spank me. I could dance more ways. And my mom said it used to frustrate her so bad she would try to spank me. She said I'd end up with belt marks all the way up my back. I would flail and try to duck and move and maneuver and get out of the way. And God says, you may try, Israel, but you're not moving. I've got you cornered. And you're going to experience my wrath. And you're going to experience my wrath so that you'll turn around. That's grace. See, Israel could see the little Baal statues. They would take these little golden idols and they had set them out in their fields as they were plowing. Because that little Baal, he was going to be the one that brought the rain and brought the food and, and made life good. They could see him. But this Yahweh God, all he does is talk. 
All, all he does, Baal says, go have fun at my temple. Go be immoral. Let loose, man. Have a good time. And Yahweh, all he says is, don't do those things. Baal, man, we had a great crop last year. And where was Yahweh? It wasn't anywhere around. But Baal, man, he's right there still in the middle of my field. Surely he's the right way. Hey, and you know what? The Canaanites, they're not doing so bad. Those Phoenicians, they're not doing too bad either. And they all worship Baal too. Hey, it's good. So we're going to go with Baal because we can see him. We can touch him. It seems like he's doing things and everybody else is doing it. God says, go ahead, try. I won't let you. I'm going to hedge you in. And I'm not going to let you find them. So that you say ultimately I'll go back. Proper response was to turn and acknowledge God as their God. Hosea as her husband. The source of all good. Israel would be crushed by the grace of tough love. And then she would be shown the grace of God allowing her to come home. Repentance sees the judgment of God. Repentance sees the stain of sin. And at the same time that it is viewing those horrible things that God does to punish sin and realizes that it is the cause of that. Repentance also sees the open arms of a father who is running to meet his profligate child. And repentance looks at the stain of sin and looks at the grace of God and it turns and it runs for the ladder. It runs home. Luke 15, the prodigal son, he says, I... When it came to his senses, he said, my father's servants have bread enough and to spare. I will go home to my father and I will beg him, make me one of your hearts. He knew when he went home that his father wouldn't turn him away. But the pigs helped him realize he needed to go back. God gave what is right and good and needful. He says, she doesn't even know that I gave her this. She's used it to worship Baal. She's gone after the lover of her false religion. He now speaks in verse 10 of chapter 2 that these little idols have eyes. He's pretending now. He's being a little sarcastic. And he said, I'm going to uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. You're going to see what, how ugly she really is. I'm going to take off the makeup and we're going to see what's under there. And the gods are going to mock her. God's going to strip her of everything. He's going to take away her joy. He's going to take away her mirth. He's going to destroy what produce and food she had so that she realizes it came from him, not Baal. In verse 13, he sums it all up. He says, I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifice to them and adorn herself with earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. She pursued idols. 
She ascribed to idols the things that only belong to God. By the way, it's interesting, isn't it? She is the prostitute and she's the one chasing the men, not the men chasing her. That shows you how bent she was on leaving Hosea. Baal didn't come for Israel. Israel went looking for Baal. She used the things of God for the worship of another. And the capstone was that in doing all that God was going to do, that she would turn around and say, I'll go home. My first husband is better. God is right. Hosea is right. And I'll find grace in their eyes. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the ministry of Your chastening hand upon us. Thank You, Father, that Your grace never cast us off but will do whatever it takes to bring us back into a right relationship with You. Father, we are so thankful for God who loves so completely like that. Father, we understand in practical terms of parenting uh, that those things are true, but Father, when it comes to our spiritual relationship with You, we struggle with that at times. And we tend to look at you as capricious or cruel. But what you really are is kind. Father, we we understand our own love for our children. We understand the kindness in our heart as we discipline our children. May we understand that your discipline of us comes from an infinitely more kind and loving heart than we will ever possess. And may we understand, may we even in our own lives, Lord, open our eyes, cause us to reflect back to the past and say, you know, I was going down the wrong road and and, and God by some means intervened and it wasn't pleasant and it was maybe even painful, embarrassing, whatever. But God, you turned me, that was the turning point in my life. The loving confrontation of a gracious God. So that we would fall on our knees and say, I'll go home, I'll go home, I'll go home. My Father runs to me with open arms. Lord, may we never forget that your love comes in many demonstrations. Lord, help us to give thanks even for the trials that you take us through to bring us home. We pray all this in the great name of our great God, our great Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, who brought us home through the work of His Word and the work of His Spirit as He brings us back to You, Father. It's in Your name we pray.